Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll look at the new evidence of mass graves in the city of Mariupol and sum up the tactical and strategic situation in the war ahead of the Orthodox Easter weekend. I also speak to Elisa Cooper, a Ukrainian chef and influencer who's rebuilding her career in London. She talks movingly about her new life and shares some top Ukrainian recipes. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 22nd, day 58, and today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor Venetia Rainey, and Rutas Ahmed from our comment team. I started by asking Venetia about the disturbing revelations of suspected mass graves in Mariupol. Yeah, so we've we've been hearing for a while that the Russians have been digging mass graves um, in lots of different places, but in Mariupol, we always kind of suspected that there would be that there would be a lot of bodies. There would be a lot of dead people. You know, we haven't been able to go into the city for a long time. It's been bombarded for over a month. Um, We knew there'd be a lot of bodies in the streets that would need to be buried. And we heard the mayor saying a couple of days ago that the Russians were creating mass graves, burying bodies in secret. Um, And we've now seen satellite proof of that. Um, So satellite photos have emerged showing about 200 graves, some of them in four sections, some of them 85 metres long. These are huge trenches that have been dug um, and bodies being shoved into them, basically. Um, We saw similar things in, in Butcher. We saw mass graves there, although on a much smaller scale. And of course, we also heard towards the beginning of the war reports of Russia taking in its mobile crematorium. We weren't sure what that was going to be used for. We're not sure where it has been used. But we always knew that there would be an issue with having to cover up the death toll of this conflict. And I think that's what we're seeing in Mariupol now. Um, Obviously, if we can see it already from satellite pictures, it's not going to be much of a cover up. But the question is when we'll be able to get in and find out exactly how many people are in those mass graves and be able to identify them. Thanks, Venetia. Mutaz and Dom, do you want to add anything to that or should we talk a bit more generally about the situation in Mariupol? Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. I'll just add that it, this really does give the give the lie to what we saw from Putin yesterday. Remember that excruciatingly uh, embarrassing stage stage managed choreographed meeting with Sergei Shoigu as defense minister when he says uh, when he said that they, they weren't to um you know take take the uh as a style plant in Mariupol um and it was it was awful to watch i mean it was it was clearly 
designed for a little bit of domestic audience but um but then there was this this curious line when he was talking about the 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 civilians still trapped in in Mariupol and in that plant um and he just sort of lapsed almost into the terms and conditions if you like of of his of his speech he said this is a quote the russian side guarantees their lives and their dignified treatment under the relevant international legal rights unquote i mean it's like he's rehearsing his lines for the international criminal court it was just so staged it was so so forced. He also said, um, uh, quote, all those who have been wounded will be provided with qualified medical help. So, well, thanks. Am I a marvellous? I mean, to, to not do so would be a war crime. Um, so it's very uh, magnanimous of him to, to say all these things. And then, of course, you get the, the satellite imagery, which I think, um, you know, you've got to take with it. You've got to use your own uh, verification here. Make sure that you, you're trusting the source of the information that's, that's being presented to you. But um, I, I think we are now seeing... The first evidence of, of of a repeated performance from what we saw in Butcher, um, and it, and it looks horrific. So I think I think the I would, I would judge judge the Russian military and Putin on the actions rather than the uh, rather than the glorified legalese words that we hear from him. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that we, we we're seeing these images uh, because of uh, you know they're coming from Maxar Technologies, which I think is a private company it's not sort of state intelligence it's a combination of sort of um um satellites you know new tech high definition photos and open source analysis and sort of geolocating um and it shows that that in this day and age it's re- it really is impossible to hide atrocities that perhaps in previous wars could have been buried you know um uh, mass graves uh, before these technologies were available would only be discovered you know sometimes decades after uh, the atrocities occurred. And it, 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 you know, there's this intersection now between you know, new tech, open source information, and a very gruesome traditional way of fighting. Um, and and we're, we're able to sort of see things in a way that I don't think we've been able to see with, with any previous major land war. Um, uh, so you know, it's good for holding Putin to account. Obviously, it's, it's horrific to see but um, the, the, this is a much more transparent war um, than than I, I, I think we're, we're used to. And this is this has come out as we know that Ukrainian fighters are clinging on to their last redoubt in in Mariupol. Um, this is despite Putin claiming victory in the city. What's the latest that we have from the situation from, from the from the front lines in Mariupol? So it's still disputed as to whether or not the halting of the Russian attack in. Mariupol is taking place. Uh, they've said this morning that they, they'll be prepared to allow the evacuation of fighters and civilians from the Mariupol, um, from the Azovstal plant in, in Mariupol. But you've got to ask where, where to. Um, there, there have been suggestions. Ukraine has been very forthright in saying that, that, that people have been spirited away into, into Russia. Um, and the and the fighters that have had to uh, either surrender or have been or have been captured, we don't know where, where they are. So this this offer to to provide safe safe passage out, um, I mean, that should have been there should have been there weeks ago, uh, but uh, it's not yet been taken up by the Ukrainian side. Uh, they're very reluctant to to do so given the given the history of what's happened before. So still still mixed reports uh, from the south. And not a lot of movement uh, down there. We'll talk about elsewhere in the uh, in the Donbass in a minute. But um, that, yeah, that's for now. Yeah, obviously, just to add to that, we had Putin saying yesterday that he wanted to 
ensure that not a fly could get in. Um, and he sort of acted like he'd made the very generous humanitarian decision to not send Russian soldiers in to this, um, to this steel complex where there are sort of tunnels and bunkers and Russian soldiers would really struggle to get to the Ukrainians that are holding out there. And there are Ukrainian soldiers and civilians um, in there still hiding out. Um, so yeah, he, he appears to sort of left it to left it to fester and we'll see whether they manage to break out. They obviously asked earlier this week for some kind of humanitarian corridor to try and rescue them, to evacuate them, evacuate them to a third country. Um, I don't see that as very likely to be able to happen. Um, Ukrainian forces have not been able to punch through to Mariupol um, until now and it doesn't seem like they will be able to in the future, but it'll be interesting to see what happens to, to these people, several thousand people left in this steel plant. So let's zoom out from Mariupol. What's the latest updates from across the Donbass? So across Donbass, uh, as we've seen in recent days, artillery and, and airstrikes ongoing. There's uh, not a lot of tactical action. I, had a, I was in a background brief last night with Western officials. They said that the Russians have uh, are still repeating or are repeating the, the tactics we saw in the north of the country. They're still using long convoys on, on single-track roads. They're very vulnerable to um, Ukrainian uh, attacks. Um, they say that uh, we were told that rather than being going through any any significant amount of reconstitution, fixing the people, fixing the vehicles, reorganising the units, um, the the new uh, new units because uh, there are some fresh battalion tactical groups, but also the the regenerated forces um, are being fed in piecemeal. There was a quote uh, into the fight rather than being uh, held back for any further further training. So. Russia seems seems not to have learnt the lessons of the north, or if they if they have, they've just not given given their people the the time to um, to, to to act upon them. Having said that, uh, we were told that in in terms of numerous, just in, in in terms of the numbers, uh, Russia has got a, a large amount of force in the area. Um, we were told that they they could mass the three to one advantage military military planners would always would say an attacker must have a three to one advantage over a defender in order to take a position that goes up as you as you get into more urban area and in in areas uh, such as the donbass where the the villages are actually very close together uh, and anything less than two kilometers ish then you've got this a bit like northern france actually in the second world war um, you'd have this lattice work of a very defensible position. You could have small number of troops with a mobile reserve using anti-tank weapons that could that could create a, a real problem for any attacker. So the three to one advantage, you'd probably need more in the Donbass anyway. But the point the Western official was making was even though in just counting counting bodies and tanks, they might have a three to one advantage. They're not the right types of organisations. They're not in the right place. They're not using the right tactics. So. Russia has a has numerical advantage, but is still not employing its force the most efficiently. Um, if they made those territorial gains, they would be very difficult to dislodge because of the numbers. But at the moment, in the Donbass, we are not seeing anything like the, the combined arms manoeuvre, the, the tanks working with infantry and engineers and support and using air sufficiently um, that they need. In particular, the Russian Air Force is still very, very reluctant to operate anywhere other than over its own troops. Um, you know, it should be the other way around. The, the Russian Air Force should be dominating the air such that the ground forces are then, then have the confidence to move forward. But it seems the reverse, that the, the Air Force is, is not operating in any great numbers um, or to any great effect in anywhere 
where there is not a, a ground force to protect them. So 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 Russia's yep got the numbers, still not still not quite got the got the um, the operational art um, as it should be. Um, I think another thing worth mentioning is these comments that we heard from this top Russian commander this morning about trying to take all of southern Ukraine. Um, and this seems like a bit of a shifting of Moscow's war goals again. Um, so on top of capturing the Donbass, they also want to take all of the south, which they have taken a fair chunk of so far. Mariupol obviously is the sort of last holdout there, but Kherson, we've heard quite a lot of, has been occupied for a while. Mikolaev... Um, But in order to take all of the south, they would also need to take the area around Odessa, which they have not been able to do. We haven't seen much fighting there. And the loss of the Moskva warship would make incredibly hard to do because the Moskva would provide aerial cover for any land troops that would be, you know, any troops that would be landing on the coast to try and take the city. Um, This Russian commander suggested that they needed some kind of um, exit into Transnistria, which is a Russian separatist enclave um, in Moldova, which neighbours Ukraine on that side. Um, It's not clear whether he meant he wanted to create a a literal land link and take all of southern Ukraine leading up to there, or whether he wanted to be able to create a sort of more economic blockade or just have the option to link up with troops there. Um, But it's just another sign of Russia's war goals shifting. And and it also casts a lot of... It creates a lot of questions about how realistic they're really being at this point. You know, the Donbass will be a big fight it's not certain that they will be able to take it, particularly with more and more heavy weaponry flowing into Kyiv. Um, will they be able to hold on to all of their territory in the south? Unclear. They definitely don't seem to have the resources um, to be able to take more territory in the south, uh, you know, particularly without the Moscow warship. So um, I think it's interesting to question what the sort of official goals are and, and why they're shifting at this point and what they really think they'll be able to achieve in the coming weeks and months. Thanks, Venetia. There's a few more international updates and diplomatic updates I think we should talk about. Uh, Dom and Mutaz, do you want to take this? Uh, Dom, I know you had some thoughts. Yeah, well, firstly, I could say that in the last 10 minutes, it's been confirmed to me from the British Ministry of Defence that uh, we're going to be supplying Challenger 2 tanks to Poland. Uh, the Prime Minister made those made those comments in, in India on his two-day trip to India um, a few minutes ago. Uh, MOD confirmed it to me. Uh, now, a little bit of confusion here, or or that that we do know. You can take that, bank it. Um, beyond that, there's a little bit of confusion because it it would appear that the prime minister has spoken ahead of the <laughs> the policy being absolutely fully nailed down. You know, shock headline. Um, so we don't know if these are tanks to Poland so that they then push their T-72s to Ukraine. That would be the most logical explanation. However, it was just there was a note of caution sounded to me that this this might be um, a way of just bolstering the NATO alliance, bolstering that bilateral agreement with with um, with Poland, showing that support. It's more likely to be the former, I have to admit. It, it's more likely that this is this is a deal to allow um, actual hardware T-72s from Poland. I think they have about 450. Did, a, did an article a couple of weeks ago. I could go and check that um to uh, to ukraine um but it but it might not so i just i just i just sound that note of caution about about what what the knock-on implication is if it's diplomacy or actual hardware but yes i can confirm that that mod will be supplying challenger 2 tanks numbers yet to be determined um to poland in the uh, in the very near future and there's also the news that Boris Johnson said today that Britain is reopening its shuttered embassy in Kiev. It had been relocated to Lviv. It's now reopening in Kiev. Uh, Mutaz, um, tell us a little bit about this. 
So um, we, we, we actually commissioned uh, and published, um, and you can go on, on the Telegraph website and read it, um, uh, two days ago, an article by Sir Ivor Roberts, who was the British ambassador to Yugoslavia and Ireland, uh, among other countries, um, uh, urging uh, Boris Johnson to move the British embassy back to Kiev. And, you know, he, his case was that, of course, it's 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 a risky move because you know Kiev is the capital of a country at war, and Kiev can you know the embassy uh, would be at risk of being shelled, um, and, and the diplomats you know are going to be at some level of risk. But when you become a diplomat, you sort of, especially um, uh, you know uh, when you're posted to a country like Ukraine, uh, which has been at war effectively since 2014, you have to accept a level of risk. Um, and it's clear that judgment has been made that, on the balance, um, there's there's more value uh, in showing confidence in sort of uh, Kiev's um, future uh, and Ukraine's independence um, than there is risk to diplomats. Uh, so government's decided to tolerate that risk, um, and it sends an important message. Of course, it shows that that um, it, it's a sort of um, uh, statement from the British government that it believes Ukraine has secured its its independence and has secured its capital. Um, and that's it. That's a big vote of confidence. Dom, I know you wanted to speak about the international, uh, the new package of international aid from the US. And if somebody would like to comment, Venetia, maybe on the interview that Olaf Scholz gave to Der Spiegel, uh, I think that'd be quite interesting as well, because we've spoken a lot about Germany in the past few days. Yeah, so uh, an- another aid package um, for Ukraine we do have to keep up with this because it's it's uh, happily for, from i think from our point of view from ukraine's point of view uh, things are moving at a pace there's the new aid package is announced almost every day so the uh, united states last week unveiled an 800 million dollar aid package last night they unveiled another 800 million dollar aid package so um, worth keeping up with it because you know, the numbers are the same and it's easy to get confused here. But um, the, the aid package last night uh, is going to include, uh, President Biden said, dozens of howitzers uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and 144,000 rounds of, of ammunition. Now, depending on your usage rate and the standard, the standard usage rate for uh, artillery of this calibre in uh, high-intensity combat would be six rounds per minute. So 144,000 rounds, very roughly gives you about 24 hours of high-intensity combat with these things. Now, you know, that would be one hell of a fight if it was, if it was non-stop 24 hours, but, but you can see how if that was, if that was uh, spread out over, over um, specific tactical actions over a number of days, the, the kind of figures we're talking about. So, I mean, these are, these are significant numbers. I think the Battle for the Donbass is going to be very, uh, I wouldn't say won or lost, that's too glib about the long-range fires battle, but it is very significant that um, or, or artillery will play a, a much greater role in the next phase than it has in, in the in the defence of Kiev in the north. Uh, so these these dozens of additional howitzers, 155mm, uh, very similar to, to Ukraine's 152mm, so the training burden is going to be lessened, and these, these additional 144,000 rounds, um, very significant. Um, President Biden also said that they, their supply, the U.S. Are, are continuing to supply anti-armor weapons, and that they have supplied ten for every Russian tank that's in Ukraine. So, I mean, that is that is quite a number. Um, in the defense in the north, it, it is one thing to fire an anti-tank round when you've when you've, uh, as Ukraine showed themselves, very capable of doing. When you've crept up in these small 
these small bands, these infantry bands, these infantry teams, you've moved through the urban area or through the, through the, uh, through the woods, through the rural area, and you've managed to creep up on these convoys. It's one thing to fire an anti-tank round when you are not uh, in contact, when you're not being shot at or you're un- under fire yourself. It will be different in the next phase, in, in the Donbass. It will be a different type of fight. And so those kind of numbers, 10 to 1, i.e. you are supplying 10 anti-tank rounds for, for every one Russian tank that's currently in theatre uh, is about what you need because you've got to train on these things there's going to be some wastage some will be lost we've seen images of, of Russian forces have, have, have found have taken um, some um, some of these these anti-tank and anti-air missiles so those are the kind of numbers you need uh, we need to keep this steady drumbeat going but um, but it cannot be said that, that the US isn't isn't providing yeah significant leadership here it's it's it's, it's good to see others of course doing the same uh, where they can but uh, we sh- we should note this um the other thing that that was announced last night from president biden is that there's going to be some um ghost drones now this sent us all into a spin because we hadn't heard hadn't heard of these things before or we had heard of ghost drones and it was a different company and we we went down a rabbit hole of thinking well why the hell are they uh, trying to buy what's what's president biden doing buying drones from a company in bedford and all this anyway Got it completely wrong. Eventually, we were put on. This is a, a company that's set up uh, in the US, based in California. Yeah, understandably, where all smart tech is. North Carolina and Virginia. Now, you know, there's a there's a lot of military activity in North Carolina and Virginia. I've been to quite, uh, some of those some of those bases before. Um, North Carolina, Fort Bragg, massive training estates and very very specialized units there. You've got SOCOM, JSOC, etc., etc. Uh, Virginia. Virginia Beach, very nice place. Go there in the, in the spring, beautiful. So, you know, if this company is based in North Carolina, Virginia and, and California, it's probably got a, some, some form of soft special ops for, forces footprint. It's been, these things have been very well designed. Um, we believe they're loitering munitions, whether or not they are also the so-called um, kamikaze drones, whether or not they carry warheads themselves that can then be flown by the operator into a target, we, we don't know, or whether or not they, they might just have um, a very good, a very long loiter time. Uh, the, the switchblade that had been sent out there uh, have got sort of low, low numbers of hours uh, uh, loiter time, depending on what you want to do with it and the range and the temperature and the batteries and all that kind of stuff. But um, so we don't know how, how long these ghost drones can stay in the air, but we believe it's significantly longer than the switchblades. And we don't know if they are uh, themselves a, a weapon, a kamikaze drone. But we, we think they're day night, so thermal imaging as well as day, day TV camera. And the, these are significant. I mean, it, it, there was some suggestion that they'd been built specifically for Ukrainian theatre. I, I don't think that is that is correct. But I mean, they are they are they are brand new i mean this is not stuff that's in regular um us or western service this is this is now being pushed straight up this is the this the crown jewels of 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 mini tactical drones if you like being pushed out to ukraine so i thought that was very significant so keep your eye on on these uh on the 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 ghost ghost drones i think it was phoenix ghost was the full name but anyway have have a look it's all on it's on the wires now it's on the on the news sites we've got all our stories up in our on our website so do have a look at the these ghost drones i think that that's going to be very uh, very important for um spotting where the artillery rounds need to land um so yeah in in Incredible amount of kit going out there. Another huge package from the US. Uh, it is it is gaining a pace. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Venetia and Mutas, anything more to add on any diplomatic uh, uh, developments? Um, well, yeah, you mentioned Schultz's interview with De Spiegel today. Um, and it was the kind of stuff that you could expect, to be honest. He basically said, we must avoid war between NATO and Russia and Germany should at all costs avoid becoming a warring party and that he's doing everything that he can to make sure it doesn't escalate into World War Three or nuclear war or something. Um, I think that's what everyone want, wants. No, no one wants 
post nuclear war or World War Three. Um, but I think it's it is it will be interesting to look at in in the coming weeks and months where that line is, you know, as we send heavier and heavier weaponry to the country. Germany is doing it by by backfilling other countries' supplies. So, for example, Slovenia is going to send, I think, tanks, um, and Germany will backfill their tank supplies to avoid sending heavy weaponry directly to Ukraine. But, you know, the UK and the US are sending heavy weaponry directly to Ukraine. Um, and I thought it was interesting, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was on BBC Radio this morning. He's um, a former Russian oligarch turned sort of Putin critic in exile. Um, and he was saying that in Putin's mind, Russia is already at war with NATO. You know, he's not waiting to cross a border um, across from Ukraine. That war is, is happening right now. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting. I, 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 you know, of course, we'd expect our world leaders to be saying we don't want World War III, we don't want no nuclear war. Nobody does. Um, but the line between where war between NATO and Russia is, is not clear to me. Yeah, I, I don't think that was sort of heavy or deep thinking from Olaf Scholz. It's just a, a cheap way to explain his policy. And his policy is, um, uh, in contrast with the rest of Europe, really, and America, uh, is that he believes um, uh, that eventually uh, he and the EU will have to negotiate with Putin. And he believes... Uh, that Germany will probably still have to rely on Russian resources. And so he he has a policy of not antagonizing Vladimir Putin too much. That became clear. That became clear this week. You know, Germany, to many Ukrainians, has become the great disappointment um, because it, it's, it, it, it's reached a point where uh, Olaf Scholz is, is effectively undermining Zelensky. And, and undermine, undermining um, uh, the fight um, to, uh, you know, secure Ukraine's independence, because he's signalling to Putin that there may be a post-war settlement. Um, and so, you know, it, when even Macron is is talking about uh, heavy weapons shipments and an embargo on oil, uh, Schultz um, uh, is doing this stuff. Um, and, and at that press conference this week, he said two things. Uh, the first was that, uh, you know, uh, he couldn't send too many weapons because Germany needed them. Um, even though, you know, having Russia at the border of, of Poland uh, potentially is, is a greater security risk to Germany than 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 um, whatever else is going on. And the second thing he said was that he rejected an oil embargo, you know, and that, that was considered the next step that the EU was considering to take. So... Germany really is going it alone now in terms of, you know, its reluctance to support Ukraine. Um, and, and you know, it, it's one to watch because Olaf Scholz is now facing a lot of internal opposition as well, including from the Greens, um, the Greens for his reluctance to, uh, to support Ukraine. Thanks, Mises, and thanks, Venetia. I've just got one more thing I think we should talk about a little bit before we pose um we try and sum up some of our strategic thoughts ahead of ahead of the weekend because of course we don't come back to speak again until monday um dom nichols you've got a front page story in today's daily telegraph about ukrainians um training with armored vehicles in uk soil um could you tell us a little bit about this what 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 can we dig into it what exactly are they learning how, how are they training and how will this be used so the vehicles we're talking about is the 
the family, uh, bear with me, a bit, bit of a clunky ac- an acronym coming up here, but the Combat Vehicle Reconnaissance Brackets Tracked, close brackets, the CVRT, um, which as a, as a family fairly old, uh, brought in the 70s and 80s in the, in the, in the, British, uh, in the British Army. And the, these are tracked uh, armoured vehicles, so able to put up with small arms fire, up to sort of 7.62 millimetre, the standard issue kind of rifle um, calibre. Above that, sort of um, half inch, 14.5 mil, it, it would struggle uh, sometimes unless it's been up armoured. Um, but it is tracked so it can kind of go go most places uh, better than uh, wheels. Uh, would also be able to put up with artillery splinters unless a, unless an artillery round either hit it or landed a sort of one five five shell probably within fifty meters ish. The vehicle would would survive. It might have. Uh, we spoke some weeks ago about the difference between an M kill and a K kill, a mobility kill, where you, where you, where you, the, the vehicle still survives and if, if it's a tank it can still fire its main armament, and a K kill when the whole thing is destroyed and the crew. Um, so a close artillery round would probably uh, destroy these things. Uh, not so f- a little bit further away, th- they would probably survive. Uh, and they they are used for a variety of roles. They basically allow this space in the back of these um, uh, Sultan and Samaritan uh, vehicles, and um, th- th- so they can be. We use them for the British Army uses them for um, uh, ambulances. Uh, use them for. A command post, so you have your commander in the back with a whole, a whole suite of radios, um, and you can also use them for recovery vehicles. A big crane on top that can change uh, engines and, and big sort of gearboxes and all the rest of it, or or drag vehicles out that have got bogged in or turned over and, and what have you. So they are they're fairly uh, uh, cheap and cheerful. They are old, as I, as I say. They're, this is the sort of um, this is the quantity rather than quality end of the debate. Um, so they're fairly. Uh, they're a bit like the sort of you know the Mini Cooper of the of the military world. They don't they don't break down that often. They are fairly easy to keep going if you if you've got half a mind about um, your track browser spud and your you know all the rest of it. Um, so they are it, like I say, it's quantity rather than quality. Now it's up, entirely up to the Ukrainians how they want how they want to use it. Uh, want to use them. They are not as fast as a modern main battle tank or infantry fighting vehicle, but could probably keep up with the pace of an advance. Maybe one one tactical bound behind, so a couple of hundred meters behind the actual um, the, the main the main um, tanks and, and infantry in contact with the enemy. So they are they are able to get up to the fight. So this is I didn't like the distinction between lethal and non-lethal military aid. I think that was a little bit of a, a faux distinction. Um, but these are if you wanted to, to, to sort of briefly dip your toe into those into that water, then this is this is we've crossed the Rubicon here. This is lethal stuff. This is not stuff that you would use just for the defense. You would you would use this in an offensive capability as well. You would use this as you go forward, um, either attacking or counterattacking, but moving forward, trying to take ground uh, from the enemy, take positions. Um, so this is this is a step up. As we've been calling it for, for for weeks now, you know, the, as I say, that many people saying the distinction between lethal and non-lethal was was a was a nicety that Putin didn't recognise and didn't give any didn't give didn't give you any points for that. Um, so the, this is very much sort of through the through the looking glass time. It's now this is offensive um, vehicles. Now they are quite complicated. Uh, having said that, they're mechanically fairly straightforward. But then, you know, just having the having the kit is one thing. Um, just having the having the equipment, but you've got to train on it. You've got to have the right people qualified. You've got to have the right mechanics. You've got to have got to look after it properly, so you can't just leave these things out all the time. I mean, they're they're robust, but you, you, know, you do want to have them in in, in decent accommodation. Um, you've got to have a logistic train there. You've also got to have, have done your own thinking. So you've got to have, have done your own 
um, thinking about how you want to employ them, what, what your doctrine is, i.e. The, 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 the way you're going to fight with them. Um, you don't just want to jump in them and charge straight at the enemy. Um, that's effectively what Russia did in the north, trying to go down those in straight lines down those roads. So there's a lot to be lot to think about here. And then you have to integrate them with your force. You have to make sure that they, they are compatible um, with uh, with the other vehicles and other equipment you're going to be using, uh, not just at the at the sharp end where where all the stuff goes bang, but also behind that. If you turn around to a logistician and say, right, I want you to have enough spares to keep a company of 10 T-72 tanks going in fuel, ammunition, oil, lubricants, all the rest of it um, for five days. Great, got all that. Oh, now, here's a completely different nature of, of uh, equipment, another another vehicle. I want you to have the spares and the oil and lubricants and everything, uh, ammunition for that as well. I mean, this is a huge logistic burden once you start mixing your fleets. So all these things have to be taken into account before you um, take delivery of, of any new piece of equipment, which might be, as we mentioned some weeks ago, might be one of the reasons why all these other other nations have not supplied equipment simply because like i say having it's one thing but fighting with it is is quite another now we're told that that um there's a number of uh, ukrainian troops training with these things in the uk uh again that 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 sort of makes sense because you can't just lob all these vehicles into ukraine uh, and tell them to get on with it you need some trainers there to to explain how to how to fight them and you need mechanics to show how to fix them and as we've said nato is is extremely reluctant to the point of not doing it, putting their own for, uh, people in in Ukraine, um, inviting inviting Putin to say that NATO is, has escalated the war. So if the training is not going to happen over there, it's either going to happen in a third country, maybe on one of the massive training areas in Poland, or back here. Now, Poland, okay, it's closer, but you've still got all the faff of taking the stuff out there and the personnel doing your training and, and what have you, and then moving on. So it makes sense that, that the... the the option has been taken by the sound of it to bring Ukrainian troops to UK to um, to train here. We can have a discussion. We have mentioned it before. Uh, might be worth dipping into as to whether or not that um, that means that Britain, NATO, is is a, mo- a more active uh, or it, it is a more active participant in this war, uh, and whether or not that crosses some kind of escalatory line. Um, that's probably a, a deep conversation for another day. But it it is noteworthy that um, this this training has been given outside of Ukraine. Um, but uh, it, like I say, it had to happen somewhere. This is not something you can just just tell the guy to go and pick it up or, or drive it to the border and say, here are fellas, there's the keys, off you go. Um, so it's it's a uh, old, old equipment, uh, quantity rather than quality, but but again, another sort of significant bolstering of, of the forces, I would suggest, um, as they're about to get into this more mobile, anticipated mobile um, phase of the campaign in the Donbass. Thanks, Tom, for that. That was uh, extremely comprehensive. Um, Mutaz, Venetia, anything to add to that before we before we before we want to start wrapping this up? And if we're wrapping this up, what I think I what I'd like to hear a little bit is we've we've spoken about quite a few subjects this week, um, and it'd be good to sort of summarise where we think ahead of ahead of Orthodox Easter, which is this Sunday. Try and summarise where we think the the two sides are, and also, and I, I know we've covered this quite extensively on the Russian side. What kind of questions that they have to to answer, and in order to function more effectively and win this war, but also for the Ukrainians, what does the Ukrainian armed forces, what does Ukraine need to think of and need to do uh, over the next few weeks? I don't know who who wants to go first. Sure, I'll jump in. Um, I think 
Russia needs to think about whether or not this is going to be a long-term protracted conflict or they're going to look for some quick wins ahead of the May 9th victory day and then start withdrawing and, you know, taking, taking, re reducing any further losses. Um, we've seen, there was a Rusi report put out today that this is, could be the beginning of a, a long protracted conflict. The UK has estimated that maybe it will drag on until the end of next year. The US has said possibly until the end of this year. Um, that would be incredibly damaging for Russia, you know, in terms of its economy, in terms of its standing in the world, and in terms of military losses, as we've seen so far. Um, for Ukraine, I think the big question is, are they going to be able to retake some of the south? What, what kind of military operation would that look like? Are they going to be able to fend off Russia making any further gains in the east? And, you know, how do they start to provide some kind of sense of normality if that's even possible for the rest of the country they can't you know be on a war footing forever the other parts of the country maybe can start to be brought back to life slowly if the embassies if embassies international embassies are reopening in kiev is there a way to start looking at restarting some industries in safer parts of the country you know we heard that they've asked the imf for something like five billion a month to to tide them over these are huge amounts of money um and the interest from the international community will start to wane at some point. You know, this is still making headlines now, but that won't last forever. Um, we know from working in a newspaper how quickly stories can move on, and, um, and, and that will happen at some stage to the conflict in Ukraine. So it's about maximizing victories on, for both sides um, in that sort of shorter to medium term process. Yeah, and, and I would say that, you know, if I told you two months ago that, you know, uh, we would be training Ukrainian soldiers on British soil. Um, what would your reaction have been? You know, uh, things have been escalating gradually, and we, we've grown so used to this sort of gradual escalation from anti-tank missiles to very heavy weaponry. And for, for all the reasons we just discussed, you know, that's necessary. Uh, but we've grown so used to it that we barely notice it now. And and actually, the, 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 there's a lot of risk in that, and that's quite worrying. Um, we, we're already getting quite used to the atrocities, which is, is sad, but um, predictable. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, that's that's that on that, really. Um, it, it is quite worrying. Uh, but you mentioned Orthodox Easter, and it, it's important that, you know, we've spoken a lot about the military and the fighting in the Donbass and in the South and so on. But sort of behind this all is the concept of nation states in Europe, which is at risk now. Um, and, and when we see, you know, countries like Germany sort of backing off, uh, Germany had a very positive reaction when the invasion started, as we discussed, you know, beefing up defence spending. But but it, it is the first country to show fatigue and to back off and to, and to consider actually, actually sort of giving some ground to Putin. Um, the, the, this idea of, of independent nation states and respect for sovereignty in Europe is as at risk today as it was at the start of the war um, and 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 relations between you know not just countries but also churches are more tenuous um, today than at any point I can remember you know there was supposed to be a meeting between Pope Francis and 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 the um, the patriarch um of moscow and that was cancelled um you have leaders in the church of england saying the patriarch shouldn't just be condemned but censured and 
banned even, that he shouldn't be considered a religious leader, but a puppet of Putin. You know, this, it, it, it shows that, you know, even as we get used to war, what's happening still, the developments that are happening this week and, and that will happen next week are really historic and, and, and we're at a very, still a very dangerous point and things can spiral out of control very, very easily because those links that you, you'd expect to be there even during a war, you know, links between religions and churches, even those links are going now um, and, and that's a real concern. Important probably to note as well that Vladimir Zelensky said that Russia has rejected a proposal for a truce over the Orthodox Christian Easter period uh, this weekend. So, Dom Nichols, would you like the the final words to sum up? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think tactically, Russia still hasn't shown it's able to to get its act together, um, which is probably good in the short term for Ukraine, which will allow weapons and and training and thinking to, to flow in um, probably not great in the in the long term because there's almost maximalist aims here now P- Putin has rode back from wanting to take the whole country and, and uh, allegedly rode back from wanting to take the whole country and change the political system um, and President Zelensky has said that, that you know, not not an inch uh, of Ukrainian territory should be ceded to to Russia so they're, they're kind of entrenching in their in their mindsets and that's that's going to that's going to grind on. Um, I think U- Ukraine has shown itself adept at raising the cost to Russia. These these raids into Belgorod or the, the attack on the on the railway lines or sinking the Moskva. This is all. I mean, yes, they have they have tactical advantage, but they also they're also constantly sending the message to Russia that uh, okay, we can't meet you can't go toe to toe and slug this out. We haven't got the numbers, but um, you know how, how's that? Is that painful enough? You want to keep going? Okay, let's keep going. Here's here's something else. You want to keep going now? So Ukraine seems to be good at, at just raising the cost and saying, have you had enough, or or, or do you want to keep going? Do you want some more? Um, now, whether or not that gets to the point that that's enough for Putin to say, right, we need to we need to think of another another way uh, or a way out of this, um, or whether or not he he's just happy to to, to keep the meat grinder going. Uh, so I think we're—it's very worrying about the, the state we are at the moment in this in this war, and the the Donbass I think will show exactly how serious Russia is about about really trying to trying to find a way out. There've been some signals, but um, uh, sort of couched in, in domestic terms, trying to sort of get the population ready for some other announcements. Um, so I think I think we need to dig in, for, or they need to dig in for a for a long campaign through the Donbass and only at the end of that will we see any glimmer of an idea of, of what might come next but there's still a very long um, hard and bloody campaign to be fought here Yesterday I sat down with Elisa Cooper a Ukrainian chef author and food influencer At the outbreak of the war she fled her home in Kiev with her young son and has now settled in West London We spoke about leaving Ukraine her new life in England, and her plans to rebuild her career. I also got some excellent recipes for anyone interested in experimenting with Ukrainian cuisine. I came from Kiev. I lived in the capital of Ukraine for like 14 years already, but I was born on the east part of Ukraine in city Kharkiv, which is the most destroyed city by the Russian troops for today. And what did you do in Kiev? What, what did you work as? What was life like there? I uh, like 
you have in UK some list of the food influencers. I, I'm pretty sure like probably Jamie Oliver is number one and the list of probably 100 persons. So I was in this list like number eight or nine in Ukraine. Uh, what I did is I did the YouTube show about the how to change your daily cooking routine. I did the cookbook. I had a big culinary school in Ukraine. And before that, I had experience in a restaurant business. We'll talk later about Ukrainian cuisine and, and what exactly it is. So to bring us up to, to February, what happened when the war started? What was your experience of it? So it was a really high level of anxiety inside the social media, inside our like society in Ukraine. Everyone were talking only about this, if this is going to happen. We were expecting invasion like it were a few dates, like 16th of February, then it was 20th of February, I think. Everybody were angry and scared in Ukraine. When all this started on the 24th of February, you haven't got any ability to leave the country by plane because it was... Uh, what I see is like an OTAM system uh, over the Ukrainian sky. They made this announcement that the sky is closed by the Russians. It was on the 23rd of February. It was like on the, all the Telegram channels. Like in Ukraine, we usually receive news from Telegram channels, which is more faster way to understand what happens. And people like all over the country, they have few ways to live. They can use their own cars or they can use evacuation trains if they don't have the car. And uh, driving by car was much more not so safe as during the train. But the trains were full. If you see the pictures through the Internet, I think you have already seen them. A lot of people, it was super crowded, usually when you use train. You have seats, which is occupied by you, and there were too much people inside. People were sitting on the floor, sitting in the places which are not to, should be occupied, and it was super, super crowded. People traveled for like 30 hours, 40 wow. hours. We have a long queues on the boundaries when people try to reach the boundaries with the car. It was You can uh, wait for like 12 hours. Or more. I don't like the word refugee because we usually say that Ukrainians are temporarily moved persons. So um, most of us are women with children who were supposed to save the kids from the war. So you you left Ukraine, and what what happened next? You come to the UK. Why 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 London? First, I came to France, but I don't speak French at all. And if we speak about some sort of time, like a year you should spend in a country, I need to find work, I need to continue my work. And I cannot do this without the language. So the main reason for me was that here you can speak English and everybody can understand you. And the second point was I considered Canada, but it is so far away from home, it looks for me like the one-way ticket. Like you if you go to Canada, you will never return home. And the uh, United Kingdom is more closer to Ukraine. So tell us a little bit about what happened when you got to London. What, where, where did you stay and what was your welcome like? 
So I came to London and the, the Homes for Ukrainian scheme, I'm really grateful for all the British, to, to all the British people who opened their houses to Ukrainians. I've been through Facebook groups and it is so sweet to read about how do people to prepare to make your staying at their homes more comfortable. They would bought you some presents. They, they try to please you as much because they know how hard it's been in Ukraine nowadays. And it is so touching and so sweet. I really admire this attitude from British people. So you're you're welcome. To, you say they they bought you presents. What what did they what did they get you? Uh, when I came, like my host Olivia, she brought us some essential foods for the first time because when we stayed in Paris, we have to switch our houses because I had to rent it um, from Airbnb for one one two two days, and it's really expensive because you have to wait for a long time. You cannot have um, have a long term rent here because you don't plan to stay here and you should pay and when it all happens there were not so many like uh, free accommodation for refugees at this moment I started the project to help Ukrainian refugees to connect with somebody who offers accommodations near the borders because at the very beginning it wasn't organized at all there were a lot of people who needs like to sleep one night to sleep two nights just to have a rest or something and we were helping to connect these people on the very beginning now it is all very well settled at the places when they came but at the very start it was like a chaos we were trying to match people we called it like a tinder for refugees because we have matches from one side who can accommodate and we have people who need the accommodation so my host she helps me to restart my career we will do the event in order to raise money for Ukrainian help center. I will cook Ukrainian dishes here for people. One hundred percent of money will go to Ukrainian help center. Um, she also helps me to understand all the system British people are lived in because we have completely different system in Ukraine because like you need to register for national insurance number. You need to register your kid to school and it is uh, different f- from that we have in Ukraine and you need more time to understand how the things things work. So let's let's talk a bit about what you're doing now which is restarting your career. Can you tell us what what you're doing and you mentioned you know the Ukrainian food for people who don't know what is Ukrainian food? Oh, I can speak <laughs> for an hour. Do you have as much time for this? <laughs> please, please. <laughs> so, let me speak from my heart. I lived in different parts of Ukraine. And each reg- region has a different taste. I've been to Carpathian mountains a lot of time. People here are amazing. Food here is all about the dairy food, about the gr- dairy, grains, and a little bit of meat and dough inside this. So I do really admire banish. I cook it in my Ukrainian cooking course. Uh, I really admire vegetables which we have on the south of Ukraine. I lived in Odessa. Odessa, um, it's like Nice in France. It's like the south capital of Ukraine. And it is rich with magnificent vegetables, rich in flavor, really fragrant. I really miss this taste of vegetables on a daily basis because in UK now it is hard for me to find this, this good uh, these vegetables. 
Oh, really? what it is. <laughs> um, probably you need to look more specific uh, places for this. But on a daily basis, when you came to average supermarket in Odessa, on, in south of Ukraine, they are all exceptional. And the taste of the south of uh, Ukrainian cuisine is more like about this, a little bit like Mediterranean and Middle East cuisine, but together because it has a sea, it has a lot of sunny days. We produce wine also here. And I'm a big fan of the aubergine salads, marinated roasted bell peppers and everything like this. And also we have a lot of things that works with the dough, like palanitsa bread. It became a meme during this war because when Russian troops came to Ukraine, they need the passport to understand who is Russian and who is Ukrainian. So if you are Russian-speaking, you cannot pronounce the word palanitsa in the correct way. They try to Google translate it, and we have the word polonitsa in Ukrainian, which is strawberry, not a bread. And palanitsa is a bread. So it was like some sort of password, and we made a lot of jokes about it inside my country. So for people listening who wanted to try and cook Ukrainian food, what would you say, what's a a starter dish that they could... That they could do e- easily but deliciously. If you speak about Ukrainian cuisine, it is will be it will be borscht. It's a Ukrainian hot dish like soup with beetroots and with cabbage. A few days ago, Russian propaganda named it like extremism to to do borscht. Yes, I have links to Russian propaganda, so probably I do something against the law in Russia. So they've out- outlawed cabbage soup. Uh, yes. So what are your what are your hopes for the for the next few weeks and months in in London? All my work before was about to serve people, to make their lives easier. I was working on a project about the sustainable cooking project. Like you sometimes can bought I don't know, cauliflower and you are about to cook it someday, but it dies in your fridge. And I want people to stop wasting this food. So I was working about it on this project for last year in Ukraine. I would like to test it to the British people if they are interested in a sustainable consumption of food. And I'm thinking about maybe food tech startups. Uh, but now I'm in a research part. I don't have any minimal value product or something to speak about. That's what I'm thinking right now. So you're launching, I saw on your website, um Online, online courses. Would you tell us a little bit about that? When are they? How, how can people find them? So uh, I launched a Ukrainian a cook Ukrainian course. It was launched on the beginning of March when I was super stressed in Paris with this. My head was blowing about the news and everything. But what I wanted to do is I want to keep Ukrainian economy running because nowadays it's not like about the average inflation level. Um, some regions have less than 50% of local businesses have been shut down due to war circumstances. And the impact of these events, you will feel it in the summer, and we are really scared about it. So what I was trying to do, I wanted to keep my company running. I want to st- to be able to pay salaries to my team who still in Ukraine. They didn't fled 
because they don't want to separate with their husbands and everything like this. So they work from shelters sometimes. Um, I wanted to pay taxes in Ukraine because it is really important for my country. I want to, the main goal is to introduce Ukrainian culture through food. That's what I do for years. I culture, uh, food culture is like my point of view when I see, when I travel, when I discover my and other countries, I do it like our architecture would see the buildings, I see the food. Previously, when I came to London or to Europe, I was trying to pretend that I am more Western part, more Western girl than I actually was. And nowadays, I want to keep my traditions. I want to spread my culture. So can you tell us how, how is your son um, adapting to his, his new life in Britain? So my son is five years old and I found it really difficult to get to school because you're not in the reception year and you're new to the country and you in the end of the school year. And it takes like such a long path to walk before he gets a place in school. We didn't manage it yet. We are still in the process. He misses his friends so much. He attended bilingual school in Ukraine. At this point, I began to switch in my hand, head UK and Ukraine. <laughs> He knows English a little bit, but he feels lonely for now. And I want to help him to uh, with adaptation and with all my support, which I can provide him. You mentioned earlier when we met outside this building that you'd actually gone to the wrong side of the road when you were trying to come into to the Telegraph because of, obviously the traffic is the other side. Is there anything... Are there other little things like that, that you're sort of little culture shocks about British culture that I, you're... <laughs> I have a lot of culture shocks. It's not only about the, the driving of the opposite side of the road. <laughs> Probably one of them is you are changing money in the post office, which is not usual for me. <laughs> Having a bank holidays when the routes of the trains and routes of the buses could be changed. I've been to Richmond Park with my son on Easter and we were trying to get back home and I switched four buses, I think, because every time I went to the right wrong direction, like I'm not stupid. I can have Google Maps in my phone. I can use it. But somehow we were just sit on the bus and I see that we are going in the opposite side. <laughs> Thank you to Elisa for her time yesterday. You can find Elisa and follow her work on Instagram. The handle is Alisa, that's A-L-I-S-A, three underscores, Cooper. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, 
And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.